Welcome to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Let's say you've got yourself a candy bar. What can you do with it? Uh, I don't know. Eat it. Sell it. Save it for later. Eat half and give half away. I could also share it with my sister. Microwave it and watch it explode or catch on fire. Okay, let's not let this get out of hand. Let's simplify things a lot so we can understand what makes a candy bar valuable. We said we could eat a candy bar. That's how a candy bar is used. It's what you're supposed to do with it. Let's call that its use value. One of the things that makes it valuable is that you can use it in that certain way. You can eat it. Another thing we could do with it is exchange it for something else. Maybe my friend has some juice and I'm more thirsty than I am hungry. Or maybe I'm on a diet so I can exchange my candy bar for a friend's juice. Of course, I can only do this if my friend is game, but let's assume that they are. It's probably a fair trade to trade one bottle of juice for one regular size candy bar, right? If that's true, then they seem to be equal in value. Let's call the value something has in terms of other goods its exchange value. So its exchange value is what I can exchange it for. Okay, so we have two different kinds of values. We've got use values and exchange values. Before moving on, though, I I guess I should introduce the topic for today, right? Okay, well. Why does stuff cost money? Why does stuff cost money? No, really, think about it. It doesn't make that much sense to exchange something that has obvious value, like a candy bar. Candy bars are delicious. For something that has no obvious value, like a dollar, which is just a strip of cotton paper with intricate drawings on it. Who cares? They're a dime a dozen. Well, I guess not literally. I've buried the lead a bit, though. The topic today is in some sense what Karl Marx thought of capitalism, but in another sense it's how did Karl Marx think capitalism comes about. Karl Marx? But he's a socialist. He invented Russia and hates America. Calm down, my friends. Marx was just a dude who wrote some books. He didn't found any of the totalitarian communist regimes that took hold in the 20th century. He never had any real political power to speak of. And here's the shocker. He never really tells us what a communist state will look like in any detail. It's Lenin and Mao and Trotsky who flesh out what we today think of as communism, not Marx. But Marx hates capitalism, and capitalism is the only alternative to totalitarian communist tyranny. Well, wrong again, my friend. True, Marx did not like capitalism. But it's not at all accurate to say that we're stuck with Maoist communism if we reject capitalism, or that there's a dichotomy between central planning and market-based economies. Not so. I discussed this in a monad called cooperatism. Go give it a listen. Okay, now that that's out of the way, we can calmly proceed towards the rest of the podcast in an orderly manner. Single file, everyone. Thank you so much to my friend and her daughter for helping me out with this episode. 
Why does stuff cost money? Let's start at the beginning. There's lots of stuff in the world. There are even quite a few things. We perform labor to turn stuff into things. So how do we make shoes a valuable thing? We take less and or differently valuable things like leather and whatever else goes in shoes. Leather and corking. We take those things and we add this other component to them called labor. Um, and we change the physical form of those raw materials into a different physical form. That becomes a shoe, a differently useful object than the stuff that it was made out of. Oh, I forgot to introduce this guy. This is Olufemi Taiwo. Uh, you actually heard from him in some previous shorts or monads. He's a newly minted assistant professor in philosophy at Georgetown University. He's kind of a big deal. I am, I guess now, an assistant professor at Georgetown University. Um, I teach philosophy. My research interests center on ethical theory, political philosophy, um, particularly from the perspectives of the black radical tradition and post-colonial traditions or anti-colonial thought. Femi is also a musician. You should check out his relatively new EP from Spain with Love. It was new when we recorded this interview a couple of years ago. Um, so, yeah, I was doing music before this whole philosophy thing. So over the last few months, I've been working on an EP um, called From Spain with Love. And that was fun. I got to work with a lot of different people who play a lot of different instruments. So it's great. Uh, it'll be on Spotify and iTunes and all that good stuff. By now, he's got new stuff out. You can like his Facebook page and go to his website to listen to his stuff. Links in the show notes. We also included a song of his in the Floating Person short monad. So you can go take a listen to that. The esteemed Dr. Taiwo and I studied together at UCLA. So I asked him to be our guide through the complexities of Marx's take on capitalism. How does capitalism get started from the ground up? We're in the wild after a long day of collecting plantains, and then hundreds of years later, we're an industrialized capitalist society. What happened? Right. I think the project is to figure out how capitalism works. So it's to give a like functional explanation of society um, given the background condition of capitalism. It's helpful to read Capital Volume 1 as kind of a sort of like Ikea manual. <laughs> it's like, here's conceptually how to construct capitalism. And I think defining these other things are things that Marx feels he needs to do in order to accomplish that goal. Mm -hmm. um, so it turns out that you can't describe how capitalism works without knowing what money is, full stop. Mm. without knowing what use value is and how it's different from exchange value right. um, and how value organizes capitalist society. Actually, Femi is the perfect person to ask about this because he just wrote a blog which summarizes Marx's Das Kapital Part 1. So, Femi, what's the deal with this blog? Basically, you know, I was one of these people who had read capital and bits and pieces or read selections from it but you know just it's a long book so i hadn't in one go read all of its content and so it started off with 
me just wanting to read all of Capital Volume 1. But as I thought about it, I kind of thought, it's really unclear to me that the book needed to be 700 pages or however long it was. Like, that's, for, that's just a lot. Get an editor, Carl. And it just seems unfortunate because the ideas in the book, I think, are pretty important. You know, I think whether he's right or wrong about them, I think they're important. It's a great blog. I read it. Femi, how do we find it? WhyEverythingCostsMoney.com WhyEverythingCostsMoney.com Awesome. It's in the show notes attached to this episode if you want to link directly to it. Okay, so why does everything cost money? So I think, you know, it's helpful to just start from the simple case that we all understand and then build the complications out of it. Okay, sounds good. We'll start simple. So we make things to meet our needs. I make sandwiches to fill my empty stomach. You make shoes to protect your feet. And we're off to the races. Use values are things that each of us can make varying amounts of. I can make a bunch of sandwiches if that's all I wanted to do today. Or I could just make one sandwich. Use value. Let's pause for a second on that one. What, what do I use sandwiches for? I cut it in half and eat it. And I give it to somebody after I ate it. No! Good, yeah, that's the use of a sandwich. What, what do I use shoes for? I put them on my feet and walk around with them on my feet. Sounds about right. Also to throw out presidents and to throw out Austin Powers if you like dated references. throws a shoe honestly anyways the point is you can use shoes for lots of things good so most things are useful and so they have value for us let's follow marx in calling those use values use values are things that each of us can make varying amounts of i can make a bunch of sandwiches if that's all i wanted to do today that's awfully nice of you making a bunch of sandwiches so you can give them away for free One reason I might make more than one sandwich is that, you know, maybe the excess sandwiches I'm going to do something else with. Maybe I'm going to give them to my friend, to my kids, to my parents, you know, somebody. And then there's a particular thing that we do with excess stuff um, that we all know and understand, which is exchange. So in barter systems, we could exchange a useful thing for another useful thing. Okay, so I'm making extra shoes. You're making extra sandwiches. Our friend Femi is out picking plantains and frying them in butter with cinnamon and sugar. It's a good situation, too, because I really want those plantains. And I'll gladly trade a sandwich for some plantains. Femi really wants some new shoes because plantain trees are hard to climb and he just broke his sandals. So he trades some of his freshly cooked plantains for some sandals. Good deals all around. This is what Adam Smith dreamed of in The Wealth of Nations. We're exchanging stuff with one another and everyone is better off because of it. It's, it's magic or it's an invisible hand or it's just the way bartering works. So we've transitioned now from things only having use value, they're only good to have around so that we can use them, to things having a different kind of value. You know, one reason that we could make sandwiches is because of what they're good for, which is eating them. Um, Another reason that we could make sandwiches is what we stand to gain by having a bunch of sandwiches. 
So we've transitioned from things having only use value, they're only good to have around so that we can use them, to things having a different kind of value, a value we might call exchange value. But there are a few problems with our simple bartering system that we've set up. So certain goods depreciate over time, right? Your cows are going to get old and stop producing milk. Plantains don't last forever. Clothes go out of style. Technology becomes obsolete and so on. Our goods are only good for so long. So we need to offload them as soon as possible to avoid them losing their value or depreciating over time. But what if I have tons of plantains and tons of people who want them, but I don't need tons of stuff now? After all, I can't eat all of my food for the month today. I need to space out the amount of food that I get through time since food doesn't stay good forever. I'd prefer to have like a voucher for stuff later, like a free sandwich coupon I could redeem whenever I need a sandwich, or a free pair of shoes voucher I could redeem when I actually need new shoes. You get the idea, right? Okay, but there's another problem. What if all I have to offer are plantains? Maybe I have a bunch of plantains, but maybe you don't like plantains. Um, and so I'm rich with respect to the possible exchanges I could have with someone who is a fan of plantains, but poor relative to the kind of exchanges I could have with you. But what if my friend Lisa doesn't like plantains? What if she's the shoemaker and I need shoes? I'd have to trade with Kelly, who likes plantains, for a burrito, which Lisa likes, so I can trade with Lisa and get the shoes I need. This could get complicated really fast. I may have to trade with Amanda to get some milk, to trade with Patrick to get some chocolate, to trade with Danielle to get some juice, to trade with Kui, who will only trade for juice on Sundays before brunch, but will give me eggs, which I can trade with Ben. You get the idea. Bartering works really well when it's really simple, but we don't have to go far to find complications and more complications. Here's another problem. You can't take a chunk out of a machete and trade it for a plantain. And it wouldn't even be a machete if you just took a chunk of it. So money is perfectly continuous and commodities are discrete. Right. It would be better if we had something continuous that we could divide into, say, quarters or tenths. We could call them dimes. Or into twentieths and call them nickels. Wait a second. I get that a dime is a tenth of a dollar and die is related to deca, which means ten. But why call a twentieth of a dollar a nickel? It beats me. Goods are not generally divisible like this into tenths and twentieths and quarters. Could, you could give someone half a plantain, but you know, not every object is like that. Like, I, I can't buy half a MacBook. Right. <laughs> <laughs> then there's this other problem of comparing the values of things. When you deal with widely different values, the, the scale of comparison gets like really weird. At a certain point, it feels like plantains and rocket ships can't be compared. You know, there's a lot of senses in which plantains and rocket ships are different from each other, I would think. So how do we solve all these problems? I've got an idea. Money! And at the end of the day, that's all money is. Money is just this particularly useful intermediate step. Money solves our problems. Whether or not our preferences change or the preferences of people we might exchange with change, 
money will be robust against many of those changes that holding value in particular goods or use values wouldn't be robust against. This is fancy talk for one simple idea. Everybody wants money. Unlike plantains, which not everyone likes because some people have terrible taste, everybody wants money because it's a stand-in for everything they want. Even better, we can exchange money for goods and then I don't have to spend my money right away. I can exchange something perishable for money and then spend the money later because it isn't perishable. I can save money up. I can divide it into small chunks like dollars, pennies, dimes, and so on. Money solves a lot of problems for us. So at the most basic level, why does stuff cost money? Well, because money's really useful. It solves a lot of problems that are inherent in a bartering system. Okay, let's take a wee little break, and then when we come back, we'll go beyond money to capital. If you have a smartphone, please do subscribe on your favorite podcast app. My personal favorite is Pocket Casts. It's free and it's excellent. If you're looking for a podcast that's really similar to Reductio, I recommend Hi-Fi Nation. That's H-I-P-H-I. Phi is the Greek letter at the beginning of the word philosophy. Hi-Fi Nation. The episode I recommend to start with is Cover Me Softly. It's really good. We're back. Here's Olufemi Taiwo of Georgetown University's philosophy department again. So so last piece of basically this large thing we've been building to say is, okay, we started off by saying we make stuff. One reason we can make stuff is because it's useful. One reason we could make more stuff than we individually or our communities need could be the use that other individuals or other communities might have for that thing. Okay, so we've got to the point where we're past the problems of a bartering economy. Instead of trading plantains for shoes and donkeys for rocket ships, we've got something better. I'll trade my donkeys for dollars and save up that currency, and then I can exchange it for whatever I want in three days, three months, three years, and so on, for something else that's useful. I can exchange it for something else that's useful, but I can do it whenever I need to. Here's where I might tell a story according to which money is this simple solution to a number of problems with bartering and capitalism comes about later because it's an efficient system for producing useful stuff. That, according to Marx, would be wrong. And what Marx has to say about capitalism is that under capitalism, that's not why we produce more stuff than our individual needs are or our individual factories needs are, our individual communities needs are. Um, The reason why we produce the things that we produce in general is for their exchange value. Um, I produce sandwiches because they can get me dollars. Sandwiches are, you know, in in a way like a dollar producing item, a dollar producing object. Um, And when I say what's good about my sandwich making factory or my sandwich making business. I give you an answer that's based in profit, that's based in how much I exchange for it, Mm. as opposed to how tasty the sandwiches are, how nutritious they are, etc. So according to Marx, we've already started doing something fundamentally capitalist when we produce a product with use value for the sole reason that we'll be able to exchange it later. So sandwiches become commodities when they're produced in 
the backdrop of a society that produces things in general in this way for their exchange value. When we start making sandwiches in order to make money, we've already taken a step down the yellow brick road towards capitalism. How does that work? Mark seems to think something like the following, and here I'm throwing in my own two cents. You shouldn't hold Femi responsible for anything I say in this episode, but you certainly shouldn't think he's responsible if what I say next is dead wrong, because these are my own thoughts. Marx seems to think that capitalism has its own way of ordering our world, such that the end goal of our activities is to get more money rather than to get things of true value. The internal logic of capitalism dictates that we always be working toward amassing more wealth. And if we're working for a capitalist or a uh, business owner, then we're working to amass more wealth for them. Think about it. The Gordon Geckos of the world work hard so that they can buy nicer suits and cars, so that they can win friends and influence people, trademark 1936, so that they have more and better opportunities to work hard and get more money, which buys them still nicer suits and cars, which... dot dot dot. There's a bit of a treadmill at work here. But the ultimate goal, if there is one, is to get as much money or wealth as possible. This is one of Marx's central critiques of capitalism, especially early on in his work. But we can get to that later. I make sandwiches so that I can exchange them for money, so that I can sell them. Here's where capitalism starts looking a lot more like capitalism worthy of the name. I use the money I get from selling my sandwiches, the extra money that I get from actually doing the work of putting bread and fillings together to make a sandwich, to make either more or better sandwiches. The next day I've upgraded from PB&J to avocado and cheese and I can make the same amount of money by selling fewer sandwiches. So you start out by producing stuff, then you exchange that for money, you sell the stuff and, you know, as a good business, you realize that tomorrow you'll be in the same position. Hopefully you've made a profit on the, you know, plantains or fish or sandwiches that you sold. And so you put that back into operating the business the next day, hoping to produce even more of the sandwiches. Why do you produce more of the sandwiches? Well, because if you produce more of the sandwiches, you can get even more money. So I start with capital and I go through this process so that I can end up with more capital. I guess if you produced artisanal sandwiches <laughs> that people would pay twice as much for, maybe you wouldn't have to produce as many physical right. sandwiches. Right. Um, but the idea is that you keep producing the thing in order to get more money, more profit. I have a certain amount of sandwiches I can make per day. I extract the extra value I've created and use it to upgrade my ability to make sandwiches. And then I'm off to the races, extracting excess value from my products and employing that value to make better sandwiches or making sandwiches more efficiently. And then I use the excess value from that investment to make even more improvements. And then I use that to make even more improvements. Say you're employed by Femi, the sandwich CEO. <laughs> and... Let's say you make 10 sandwiches a day over the course of your shift and I pay you a wage. But the thing is, the wage is going to be some lower number than what I make off of you in the course of that day. So if I can sell each of those 10 sandwiches for a dollar, then you produce $10 worth of stuff over the course of your shift. 
um, and maybe I only pay you $5. Well, what happens to the other $5? Well, it's mine. I, Femi, CEO of Sandwich Corp, make this deal with all of my employees um, because I know that they will, they will accept this deal. And capitalism is just this setup where I, CEO of Sandwich Corp, get to do this times as many workers as I've employed. And the purpose of owning the sandwich factory, the sandwich shop or whatever it is, is just so that I can do this. This is the point of making sandwiches is to get dollars. What this translates to in terms of the worker capitalist relationship is that my employing of you is a way to get value from you in the context of a society where we get value from making stuff. So the capitalist is the person who owns the means of production, the bread and the other raw materials, the sandwich distribution systems and relationships, the panini press, etc. If you if you don't have bread and lunch meat, you can stand at a table and move your hands around all you want. There's no sandwich getting produced. A capitalist sort of rents me the means of production for a certain cost. I use those means of production to produce value in excess of the value of the raw materials on their own. I use those means of production to produce value, meaning I take the raw materials and I transform them so that they're worth more than just the raw materials on their own. This seems like a fair situation, right? I get some of the excess value, the capitalist who rented me the means of production gets some of the excess value, and everyone goes home happy, right? Well, Marx doesn't like capitalism, remember? So after the break, we'll talk about a few of the critiques he levied against capitalism as an economic system. During this break, I wanted to ask for your help. There are three things you can do to help support Reductio. First, you can rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, and so on. I've included a couple links in the show notes. Second, you can support us financially at patreon.com slash reductio. Thanks again to our ongoing supporters. Your support means the world to me personally and to others involved with Inverted Spectrum Media. Third, and perhaps most importantly, spread the word. Post our links on social media, recommend us to friends, post our links on blogs and groups you're part of, Word of mouth is like 90% of how podcasts spread. Thank you all in advance for your help. Welcome back. We were just about to get into why Marx is no fan of capitalism. Dr. Olufemi Taiwo of Georgetown University. I think Marx thinks capitalism is theft in a deep way. Why would it be theft? It seems like the way we had it set up before the break was that everyone was getting a good deal. The capitalist owns the capital, the means of production, and the laborer does the, the work to make valuable stuff out of the raw materials using the means of production. So let's start in answering this question by asking what goes on in a typical work day. And to simplify our discussion, it's best to think back to a time during, let's say, the Industrial Revolution in Europe, around the time when Marx is actually writing. And this is during a time when you get a pretty pure capitalism. Whoever owns the means of production gets to dictate 
when the work happens, how the work happens, who does the work, and what they get paid to do the work. Capitalism just is, for Marx, the extraction of surplus value. And so every time you go to work for some percentage of your work day, you're producing the amount of value that it takes to reproduce your social position or something. So you produce the amount that your employer will pay you. And then the rest of your work day are just, in a sense, kind of stolen hours. So you're producing more value, but it's not given to you in any form. It's just taken from you, right? That is, every day you work for a bit of your day to produce enough valuable products or services to pay your wages. Let's go back to the Industrial Revolution in Europe and pretend you're going to work in a factory producing widgets. Throughout the day, you're producing value. You're taking raw materials and making them into useful items that can be sold. At a certain point in the day, let's say about halfway through, you've produced enough value so that your boss can pay your wages. Your wages are essentially static, so what you're doing is producing enough to maintain the same quality of life week after week. So far, so good. Then maybe you work a bit longer to compensate your employer or your manager for the actual productive labor that they put into securing buyers for the products, securing raw materials for you to work with, and so on. That's all productive labor, and so it's fair for you to put some work into compensating them for that labor, right? That seems reasonable. So you work like five hours of your day, and you've produced enough value to pay yourself and to compensate your employer for their labor that went into making it possible for you to have a job in the first place. So far, so good. So I get paid $10 a day. I produce $20 of value um, whenever, at whatever point in the day when I've produced $10 a day. I, I could ask myself, why should I keep working? And Marx thinks, you know, there's, there just isn't a good answer to that. The capitalist is just, just has something over on you. But you wouldn't have a job at all if a capitalist wasn't there to loan you their rivet gun, right? It, it seems like a fair deal that if I own a rivet gun, I should be able to rent it to you for a while, right? That's more or less exactly how Marx characterizes the capitalist worker relationship. Um, he would just say some additional thing. Notice, by allowing someone to use your rivet gun, you have done nothing productive, Marx would say. You are just in a position to exploit the fact that the background, the legal and social structure, prevents the worker from using that rivet gun unless you allow them to, and allow them to in this particular way that allows you to generate profit without actually constructing any car doors, right? Why shouldn't I be able to use a rivet gun that you're not using if I'm skilled at it and willing to put it to use? This is the sort of theory of justice behind Marx's economic thought. There's something deeply wrong about ownership if ownership means I can rent you something that I wasn't going to use in the first place. Ownership isn't productive or useful. Michael Sandel makes this point in his undergraduate course on justice at Harvard. It seems wrong at a deep level for someone to be able to buy one of the few remaining Stradivarius violins and put it in a display case never to be played again. Stradivarius violins should be played by the best violin players, not stored in the display cases of the richest violin collectors. Similarly, there seems to be something wrong with the idea that the dependence of the workers on the capitalists 
the quote-unquote, I wouldn't have a job without your means of production idea, only goes one way. The capitalist is also dependent on the workers, after all. They don't know how to use a rivet gun. I do. So what are they really bringing to the table? This naturally brings us to the second major critique that Marx has of capitalism. Why do you own the rivet gun? And I'm going to actually start at the present and work backwards. So we're in this situation where people who own the means of production can extract surplus labor from us. Capitalism is just the extraction of surplus value. What explains historically the fact that some people own the means of production and other people do not? Um, So there are these historical periods of time where people just acquire a bunch of stuff, a bunch of land or agricultural products, access to natural resources on which to build refineries and factories and whatnot. Marx has a fancy word for this. Primitive accumulation. Primitive accumulation. Before capitalism gets started, something explains how the land, material, and wealth get accumulated other than capitalism. There are pre-capitalistic forces deciding who's a have and who's a have not. People acquire land and the stuff and in various ways, the labor power. And then they adopt a social and legal structure that entitles those some people to certain elements of it. And that creates the political situation in which some people can, in the first place, own the rivet guns and factories, and etc. And other people have to rent the use of them in order to make value. And so the kind of present day imminent relationship of the capitalist and the worker is one of theft. And today's theft is predicated on the theft of yesterday, the theft of land, the theft of resources, settler colonialism, etc. Most of that is explained by processes and activities that are essentially just theft. The government claims land from the First Nations and then gives that land to American settlers, their means of production. Cortez shows up and decimates the indigenous population and then steals their land and natural resources and ships it back to Spain. Or maybe whole peoples are stolen away from their land and so the possibility that they would be in any situation other than a worker is denied to them. Primitive accumulation. Accumulation of the means of production, like land, livestock, and other resources, to some people at the cost of other people before the wheels of capitalism start turning. As you said, non-capitalistic, naked violence, theft and plunder. So, at the end of the day... Today's theft is predicated on the theft of yesterday. But Femi has a, a bit of a critique of Marx's view of this. The impression you get is that first there's, as you know, any even cursory history of colonialism will show to you, um, just naked violence, plunder, genocide, theft. First that happens, and then capitalism gets built on the remains of that. But I, it just seems to me that there's just both of those stages happening. Different places, different ways, different parts of the globe, different levels of intensity, but those are just two parts of what is involved with capitalism. There's a naked violence and accumulation part, and then on the strength of that naked violence and accumulation, then there's this kind of zone of the rule of formal, you know, the rule of law and blah, blah, blah. 
on the basis of what's been gained from the naked violence and accumulation, which it seems to me is often continually required. Femi points out that it's not this simple first step primitive accumulation, second step market economy. Instead, the primitive elements continue to happen to this day. Police confiscate huge sums of money and property. People are exploited at the threat of violence. People's addictions are cultivated and then exploited. Some people just straight up steal stuff. And markets often determine that you must pay exorbitant sums just to survive for healthcare, for instance. So at the end of all this discussion, I wonder if capitalism is this very broad category for Marx. Is any situation where people use each other for their own gain an instance of capitalism? Here's how I put the point in the middle of our interview. I was referring to the expeditions of the murderous Christopher Columbus funded by Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. And there's a sense in which, you know, Ferdinand and Isabella are following capitalist logic and they're providing some means of exploration and and means of naked violence and aggression to Columbus and his crews in the hopes that they'll be able to extract excess value from their conquests. And Columbus is just doing the exact same thing and to a certain extent. He's extending opportunities to these men who join him on his crews so that he can extract excess value from their labor. And so it kind of happens all the way down. Yeah, I think morally, you know, the kind of instrumentalization of other people and other people's labor. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that precedes capitalism by quite a bit. And the, the new thing that happens with capitalism is just the organization of production itself on a societal scale and a global scale around that same, that particular kind of political relationship. So the idea of using people happens before capitalism happens. That's not an evil that comes about with the advent of capitalism. What capitalism adds is a system-wide organization and legitimation of using or instrumentalizing other people. What do we make of all this? We've now got a recipe for building capitalism from the ground up. You start producing things in order to extract excess value from them, in order to use that excess value to upgrade or obtain new means of production, in order to make more money, in order to pretty soon you'll have all this land, resources, machines, tools, and so on. You'll be in control of the means of production. Then you can exploit the capital you've gained to engage in what is called rent-seeking essentially renting out your means of production and getting paid just for owning stuff. This is a nice, neat story, but as Femi points out, owning stuff isn't productive. That's critique number one. Capitalism is a system built on rent-seeking, and rent-seeking is compensating people, but not for productive labor. And second, people don't often bootstrap themselves into wealth in this way. Sure, that's the American dream, but the American reality is that a small group of oligarchs control most of the money and land and other means of production, and they didn't earn it through honest means. John Bidwell, the founder of my hometown of Chico, California, got rich stealing natural resources, mostly gold, off of Native American land, using the stolen labor of the Machuptas, the local Native American tribe. 
The Gilded Age was the age of the aptly named robber barons, rich folk who got rich by exploiting others rather than by being hard workers or honest business folk. Most people who are fantastically rich today got so by inheritance, in which case they didn't earn their wealth or the power that comes with it, or through questionable business practices, in which case they didn't sincerely earn their wealth. There's another critique of capitalism that comes up. To summarize, so far we have on the table the critique that wage labor is theft, in a sense, and the critique that before capitalistic markets begin, we are far from equal, and those inequalities are pretty much all owed to naked exploitation and violence. A third critique of capitalism is perhaps one Marx is most famous for. Capitalism alienates us. It alienates us or separates us from the product of our labor, it alienates us from each other, and it alienates us from ourselves. The first of these is the easiest to understand, though. When I go to work at a factory to produce widgets, it doesn't matter at all to me what I'm making. Especially after Henry Ford revolutionized factory work with the assembly line, I'm just riveting two pieces of metal together. For all I know or care, I could be making a toaster oven, a car, an intercontinental ballistic missile, or a rocket ship. There's nothing about my job that's directly and intrinsically connected to the thing I'm making. This is one aspect of alienated labor, labor that has been corrupted and removed from its essential purpose. To me, the very clearest example of unalienated labor is craft. A craft person is someone whose skill and identity is wrapped up in the creation of their product. They identify as someone who produces this sort of thing and put time and effort into learning and improving the skill of this craft. The artist or craft person's creative energy and free unconstrained efforts go into making the best product they can. They aren't in it for the money or to feed their family. They're in it for the craft itself. Work done solely to feed one's family is alienated labor. Work done for its own sake is clearly unalienated, and then there's lots of different kinds of labor in between. Marx dreamed of a world filled with unalienated labor. And he thought this was incompatible with capitalism, which makes everything about the accumulation of capital for the capitalists and reduces the labor of the worker to a mere means to survival. Capitalism is a system in which private owners control the means of production, the capital. They decide how it gets used and by whom. Capitalism has a distinct relationship with money because money is a stand-in for capital, for the means of production. And capitalism as a whole exists in order to accumulate capital or money in the hands of those who control it. Capital is used to gain more capital, money is used to make more money, the rich get richer, and the workers at best stay the same. But likely they just get worse due to inflation and the like.
This is all a little bit complicated, but at least we can see our way clear to a particular understanding of capitalism and its discontents. It's fitting at a moment like this to end with a parable. This story has floated around in the folklore for a number of years, but here's how Courtney Carver at BeMoreWithLess.com put it. An American investment banker was at the pier of a small coastal village when a small boat with just one fisherman docked. Inside the small boat were several large yellowfin tuna. The American complimented the man on the quality of his fish and asked how long it took to catch them. The fisherman replied, only a little while. The American then asked why he didn't stay out longer and catch more fish. The fisherman said he had enough to support his family's immediate needs. The American then asked, but what do you do with the rest of your time? The fisherman said, I sleep late, fish a little, play with my children, take siestas with my wife, stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine and play guitar with my friends. I have a full and busy life. The American scoffed, I am a Harvard MBA and could help you. You should spend more time fishing and with the proceeds, buy a bigger boat. With the proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats. Eventually you would have a fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch to a middleman, you would sell directly to the processor, eventually opening your own cannery. You would control the product, processing, and distribution. You would need to leave the small coastal fishing village and move to Mexico City, then LA, and eventually New York City, where you will run your expanding enterprise. The fisherman asked, but how long will this all take? To which the American replied, 15 to 20 years. But what then? asked the fisherman. The American laughed and said, that's the best part. When the time is right, you would announce an IPO and sell your company's stock to the public and become very rich. You would make millions. Millions. Then what? The American said. Then you would retire. Move to a small coastal fishing village where you would sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take siestas with your wife, stroll to the village in the evenings where you could sip wine and play guitar with your friends. Thank you to Kelly Marie Lavin for reading that story. Thank you for listening to Reductio. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Thanks especially to Olufemi Taiwo for the interview. Best of luck making as big an impact at Georgetown as a professor as you have made at UCLA as a grad student. I'm sure this isn't the last we've heard of Femi. Don't forget to check out his music linked in the show notes and show Femi some love for teaching us about Rush Limbaugh's favorite punching bag, Karl Marx. You know, a lot of people have heard of the medieval philosopher Hildegard von Bingen, uh, but they don't know that her mystical writings have strange passages. Passages like, 
and I saw the spirit of the Lord, and he spake unto me. Karl Marx? But he's a socialist. He invented Russia and hates America. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to our feed, too, on your favorite podcast app. Redactio Adventures and Ideas is a production of Inverted Spectrum Media. 